You're listening to the Conversations Speaking With podcast. I'm William Isdale. If this were an episode of Law and Order, here's how I might start. In the criminal justice system, key cases have generated new legal principles. Behind every case is a human being and a tragic set of circumstances. These are their stories. It began in August 1980, when baby Azaria disappeared from an Ayers Rock campsite, never to be found. Her parents blamed a dingo. The police charged her parents, and Australia stood divided. One thing I have taken from, from my almost entire lifetime career in criminal law is a very a strong lack of confidence in juries. My guest today is David Field, an associate professor at Bond University's Faculty of Law. He's the author of Crimes That Shaped the Law. David, you've practiced, taught, and researched criminal law and the law of evidence for several decades now. Overall, what's your impression of the system that we have? Do you think it's fit for purpose? I think it's fit for the purpose, but I, 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 I prefer the South African system where instead of a jury, you have three lay assessors sitting with a judge. Non-lawyers are too easily swayed. Um, they're going to court. It's a very, a very stressful situation for people to find themselves in. Most times they don't want to be there because they're giving up a time at work or they've got family commitments that it's getting in the way of, so they don't want to be there in the first place. They are too easily led by lawyers like me with a glib tongue, and I think sometimes justice is not done. The jury, however, agreed with the prosecution, finding Lindy Chamberlain had cut Azaria's throat in the front seat of the family car and disposed of the body. She was sentenced to life in jail. In 1986, the matinee jacket was found near a dingo lair at Uluru. The NT government ordered Mrs Chamberlain's immediate release. A year later, a royal commission cleared the couple of all guilt. At the same time, I'm not a great fan of trial by judge alone because judges uh, over time get a bit cynical and, uh, if you like, war-weary and won't necessarily look at a case with the appropriate detachment. The way they do it in South Africa is probably the best. You have trial by peer, which is, of course, goes back to Magna Carta. You are tried by your peers, but there are only two of them, and they are full-time professional assessors of fact, and they sit with the judge, who um, obviously is the arbiter of law. But I think if there's one thing I would change, it would be to take away juries and replace them with lay assessors. A modern case that had also pretty shoddy police work that led to a wrongful conviction was the case of Andrew Mallard. Can you tell me a bit about him? In the case of Andrew Mallard, he was accused of having killed a a jeweller in in downtown Perth by batting her over the head. Certain circumstantial evidence pointed to him, so they leaned on the witnesses to build an even stronger circumstantial case. Mallard uh, had uh, the same misfortune Uh, as Graham Stafford here in Queensland, they were both the victims of what I call donning the blinkers. The police get an idea in their head that this is their man, and they make all the evidence fit their suspect. They build a case around him instead of looking sideways at other possible perpetrators. On one hand, today's announcement removes the last legal threat hanging over Graham Stafford. 
the man who spent the best part of his adult life behind bars for a murder he says he didn't commit. But on the other hand, it still leaves a question mark over his guilt or innocence. You've given all these examples of how the criminal justice system has made terrible mistakes, but do you think that the criminal justice system is much better today? Oh, it obviously is. I mean, we learn by our mistakes, at least we hope we do. And things like identification parades, and of course now we have forensic science and CSI. The police are certainly better equipped, and they use far more sophisticated detection methods than they ever did. I think what we have to rely on now is their honesty and integrity. And as you can see from the Mallard and, and Stafford cases, we can't always rely on that. Women who are victims of domestic violence can struggle for years to stop the abuse. In a tiny minority of cases, the victim kills the abuser and she's charged with murder or manslaughter. But should we think differently about these crimes? Are abused women acting in self-defence, even if the act is premeditated? So besides these examples of where the justice system has led to innocent people being convicted, there's also some really interesting discusses of cases that show how it's sometimes difficult to draw the line between what's legal and illegal. And one thing that springs to mind here for me is domestic violence victims who then kill their, their abusive partners. How has the law tried to draw a line as to when a partner who's been abused can retaliate by killing them? It comes back to, to what we were discussing earlier about precedent, because for a long time there had been a sort of an underswell, if you like, an undertow, an opinion among the judiciaries around the world that battered wives, as they were called, who had taken enough physical, sexual and emotional violence, who finally snapped, should be given a separate deal by the law, if you like. And it only took one test case. They were all waiting for one test case, and that came in Canada. One night late in August, three and a half years ago, Angelique Lynn Lavallee killed her common-law husband, Kevin Rust, with a single shot to the back of his head. A year later, a jury of 11 men and one woman acquitted her on the grounds of self-defense. An expert had testified about the effect of the three and a half years Rust had beaten her and about the battered wife syndrome, testimony the judge told the jury to consider. Her defence was, well, I thought he said he was going to kill me when our, it was actually occurred during a party. And he'd said to her, once the guests have gone, I'm going to kill you. And she believed that. And, and the whole purpose of the case was whether or not she was entitled to believe that. Whereas most people's reactions would be, well, why the hell didn't she jump out of the window, run back into the party, ask her friends for protection, call the police, the usual stuff? Why did she behave in that weird manner? And uh, in order to explain that, the defence were allowed to lead the evidence of a psychiatrist who explained to the jury this whole thing called battered wife syndrome. And as a result of hearing or learning what actually happens inside the mind of someone like Angelique Lavallee, the jury acquitted. It went on appeal all the way to the High Court of Canada, Supreme Court of Canada, a particular justice in, in that court who happened to be female, Justice Bertha Wilson, handed down this magnificent judgment. Madam Justice Bertha Wilson wrote the decision and in it she described what she calls the myths about violence against women, such as it couldn't have been so bad or she would have left him or some women even like it. She said these are myths a jury might believe if there wasn't expert testimony to dispel them. And that became a leading case in Canada. Now, because Australia, the UK 
and a few other countries have the same common law roots, we can actually use cases from countries like Canada as what we call precedents. And it wasn't long before the, the Laverley case was being cited in Australian cases. And we, one by one, the, the states of Australia and eventually the High Court decided that that principle should apply here in Australia too. To bring out this difficulty, though, of where the line should be drawn, you ask rhetorically, would it have been any different if she had taken him out with a well-aimed shot from the living room window <laughs> while he was backing his car down the driveway on his way to work the next day? So this case of Laval was in Canada, and there's been some Australian cases that have addressed that general issue subsequently. Could you tell me about those cases? There's two in particular I'm thinking of where a woman killed her partner while he was sleeping. Yeah, and that was a, a lady, I think she was Vietnamese originally, and uh, her husband ha had treated her brutally. She'd been virtually bartered as a, as a child bride to this ruffian, uh, this Australian animal she was married to, who did nothing but brutalize her. And uh, one night she, she just snapped and, and stabbed him to death many times uh, while he was asleep. And obviously that did not go down too well as a self-defense either. It was actually regarded as a provocation defense from memory. There was another one in, in uh, the Northern Territory, a woman who very coolly took a shotgun, which was owned by the man she was about to kill, loaded it, walked into the bedroom while he was very drunk and shot him several times. They again were given the, the benefit of the court taking into account what happens inside the mind of a battered wife, which is totally different from the way you or and I would think. But in both of those cases, they also responded quite quickly after they had themselves had been subject to violence. Could you tell me about the case of Osland and how the, the High Court has drawn a line here? Yeah, Osland was interesting. If ever there was a sort of a delayed reaction um, to, to, to uh, marital violence, it was this one. Well, it was 13 years of violent abuse from my um, husband, which sort of led to that day that was either me be killed or... Um, Heather Osland was not very happily married, and um, she'd been married before. She had a son, I think, by a previous marriage. Anyway, her, her chosen partner this time was, again, a, a violent man who put her in hospital several times. So she and his stepson decided he had to go. And as a good example of delayed reaction and planning a forethought, as they say, first of all, they drugged his meal when he was having tea. And when he fell unconscious, the stepson batted him over the head with a shovel until he was dead. Then they buried him in the garden and pretended that he'd run away. It's very difficult for a defence lawyer to, to make self-defence or, or provocation out of that lot. And the High Court did say, well, there are limits. The essential difference between provocation and self-defence is that in self-defence, the jury has regard to proportionality. Was the response by the accused proportionate to the threat? Was it a reasonable response? And that's an objective test, whether the, the jury thinks objectively it was reasonable. Whereas with provocation, the essence of it is the loss of self-control. Uh, in particular, Justice Kirby said, while we are going to extend every possible leniency to women who find themselves in this situation, there has to come a point where we draw the line. And this is probably where the line should be drawn. In no way was that self-defence. It may have been provoked in the popular sense of the word, but not the way that lawyers understand it. 
So in a nutshell, how would you say that the defense of self-defense has changed as a result of these cases? I think we're entitled to look at the world through the, the eyes, if you like, through the filter of the brain of, of a battered spouse. In particular, a sense of learned helplessness, the psychologists call it, a feeling there's no escape. Whatever happens, you can't escape. There is no way. You can run away. You can cross the world. The man will find you. Another grey area where the law has had difficulty drawing a line or in justifying the line is for people who commit crimes while they're asleep. He went to sleep and he woke up maybe perhaps an hour later. Well, no, I shouldn't say he woke up. Uh, he got up. A big, big difference. Uh, left the house with his keys, did not lock the door, which he normally does. Got into his car. Uh, he drove 23 or 24 kilometers, made four right-hand turns, ended up in his in-law's driveway, entered through the basement where they slept, strangled his father-in-law, not to the point of death, but strangled him to the point where he was immobile. He then went to the kitchen or uh, found a long knife and stabbed his mother-in-law, uh, five or six times, and uh, beat her with something where, I mean, to the point where she fractured her skull. Ken then left their house and drove about a block away to the police station, walked in, hands bleeding, and he went over to someone who came to his assistance and said, I think I've just killed somebody. Now, I've always found this a bit fantastic and, and unbelievable. So tell me, what sort of things is it possible for people to do while they are asleep? It seems pretty unlikely, doesn't it? But once you, you get into the, if you like, the, the scientific side of this, it has been proved that you can reach a certain state in your sleep where you have freedom of bodily movement, but you have absolutely no, if you like, mental control over what you're doing. You have no moral filter to what you are doing. It is theoretically possible to do all those things that Mr. Parks did in Canada and uh, get away with it, in effect, because, because you are not consciously doing it. There's no moral fault. It's what we call automatism. Uh, and um, the, But the law has treated this in different ways in different countries. In England, for example, it's regarded uh, as a species of insanity, and you will be locked up in a mental institution Whereas in Canada, and to a limited extent here in Australia, they are prepared to regard it as a defense of non-insane automatism. In other words, your hands and feet and whatever may have performed the act, but your brain wasn't clicked in at the time, so you're not morally responsible. I think many people share the intuition that if it was beyond their conscious control, they shouldn't be, they shouldn't be punished. It wasn't their, their fault. But on the other hand, the law isn't only about punishment, it's also about protecting people. And if you allow it to be, if you go with this defense of non-insane automatism, then people get off and the community aren't protected. Do you think we've achieved the right balance? There's still some lingering doubt as to whether people who, who do commit crime in their sleep are likely to repeat that, whether they become what we call recidivists, repeat offenders. I think the most spectacular example of that was a, a French police officer. He was actually on holiday uh, on the north coast of France when when someone was murdered, someone was found shot dead on the beach. And he was asked, uh, since he was a, a senior 
officer of the Sûreté, the um, Paris CID, he was asked to go and investigate. And he rapidly discovered to his horror that the offender had in fact been himself. He must have done it during his sleep. He went back to Paris and demanded that he be locked up because he was a danger. Obviously his superiors <laughs> didn't believe him, so he said, okay, uh, let me sleep in a police cell for a few nights and see what happens. Uh, and th they did that. They put him in a police cell. They gave him a pistol full of blanks. And uh, obligingly, a few nights later, in his sleep, he got up and tried to shoot somebody. He was not charged with any offence. He, he actually lived out his days in retirement. Um, but he always had someone supervising him when he was sleeping. Um, so it is possible to, to re-offend. And, and there is a strong argument that if someone is so dangerous that this can happen in their sleep, perhaps they should be taken out of circulation. That's why in the UK, of course, they are locked up as if they were insane. David, I think we have time for one more story. Is there one that you'd like to share? I think the one that interests me is Wilmington. Uh, any lawyers who are listening to this will go, oh yes, Wilmington, burden of proof is always on the prosecution. Well, yes, but did you ever bother going beyond that simple statement of law and looking at the case itself? It's a very sad, pathetic human story. Reginald Wilmington and his child bride, Violet, had to get married, as my mother would have said. She was pregnant when they got married, uh, and she didn't like married life very much, so she went back to mum. After only a few months married to Reggie, he tried everything he knew to get her to come back to him. She kept refusing. So he, he hit on the most stupid plan imaginable, I would have thought. He borrowed an old shotgun from his employer. He was employed as a, a farm laborer. He borrowed a, a double-barrel shotgun, and he tied it to the inside of his overcoat when he went back to where Violet was living uh, with her mother, although she was alone in the house at the time. He pleaded with her once again to come back to him. She said no. In a big dramatic gesture, he reached for the gun, intending, or so he said, to threaten to blow his own brains out if she wouldn't come back to him. And the gun went off by accident and Violet copped both barrels. When he went on trial for murder, the trial judge said to the jury that it was for Wilmington to prove to them um, that it had been an accident and it wasn't for the prosecution to prove beyond reasonable doubt that it hadn't been. He was convicted, he was sentenced to death. Fortunately, his case was taken up on appeal and at almost the very last moment, I think it was only about nine days before the scheduled day of his execution, the House of Lords handed down this, this famous judgment, the golden thread of English law, that the prosecution must always prove its case beyond reasonable doubt. Once there is some evidence that suggests that, that the accused may be telling the truth, that in this case it was an accident, then the prosecution have to prove beyond reasonable doubt that it was not. I think it's a classic example of cases which get quoted by law students and, and practicing lawyers every day of the week, and no one's ever bothered to look at the, the tragic human story underneath it. Associate Professor David Field, thank you so much for speaking with The Conversation. You're very welcome, thank you.